Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another exciting episode of Input 2. I'm your host, Emily Rubin, and today I have with me... Jeremy Rogers, yet again. He's pretty much like a staple on this show at this point, wouldn't you say? Yeah. 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 Like a used staple. <laughs> oh, <laughs> why do you have to make it so upsetting? <laughs> well, you know, it's not ex- upsetting. Stephen King, I guess. It kind of depends. I don't know. I feel like a lot of people would say that Stephen King is upsetting. I, will, I really love Stephen King. Though I feel like a lot of people think he's upsetting in a good way. Okay, yeah, that's fair. So we're going to talk about the newest Stephen King adaption, which is Pet Cemetery. Oh, dear. But before we get into Pet Cemetery, let's talk a little bit about Stephen King adaptions in general. So, oh my gosh, there have been so freaking many of these things, from TV shows to movies. His works are in, like, every form you can think of. And let me tell you, the quality varies drastically depending on what you're looking at one of my favorite examples just of like of a bad example of stephen king adaptions is the langoliers the tv <laughs> the miniseries peak awful stephen king yeah now i haven't read the langoliers but i after seeing it i truly don't feel that it could work uh that's how bad it is when i like, look at it and go how is this like The source material can't work, you know? And combine that with CGI from a time when no one should have been using CGI. Yeah. And you just get something terrible. Yeah. uh, (laughs) It's not very good. Uh, But, you know, there are some Stephen King things that I genuinely do love. Actually, I think there are probably more that I like than don't. Shawshank Redemption. Shawshank Redemption. I liked The Green Mile a lot. The Green Mile is pretty great. Uh, We have Carrie, which I love. I love Carrie. Uh, The Shining. The Shining is debatable. If you've read the book, then, well, for me, I can't. It's very difficult to go back to the movie. I don't know. I feel like it's a good movie. Maybe not a good adaptation, yeah, but it's fair. a good movie. It is a good movie. Uh, just not what I'd call a very good a- adaptation. Stephen King does not like that bo- uh, that movie. So Not at all. Yeah. Um, Notably, there is It. There is recently. It. Um, are we talking about the new It or the, TV or the like miniseries? The notable one is the recent one, but the Tim Curry one is the old one. Okay, like... And obviously, the new It is a lot better, but I will never get over Tim Curry going, wah, wah. <laughs> He's not scary at all, as Pennywise, at least to me. Um, but I, I love him. Uh, I'm not sure it's for the right reasons, <laughs> but I love him. He's an excellent clown. He is hilarious. I It's hard to put myself into like the shoes of somebody growing up with the <laughs> miniseries. I cannot look at it and say that's scary. I uh, never have, but... I, you know, I'm a little bit desensitized, I guess, from the modern perspective. Yeah, I've just, I've seen Tim Curry in way weirder situations. Yeah. So we're just, our generation's just desensitized to this. But it itself haha, is, is genuine. I know, I'm sorry. It is a good story. Uh, the new one, I think, represents uh, King's writing better than the original miniseries. So I'm glad that we have it now. And another recent one we have is Gerald's Game. And I really like Gerald's Game. Ooh, Gerald's Game. Big sleeper success. Not a lot of buzz going on around it, but you deserve it. Especially because it's on Netflix, and if you have Netflix, you can just stream it for free, which is great. Treat yourself. See this film. It feels like something that should be in theaters. Absolutely. 
Yeah, it's it's a little strange, but that's a different discussion. <laughs> uh, it'll it's definitely very good at eliciting a reaction. Absolutely, that's a good way to put it. But what are we talking about today, Jer? Another film that's great at eliciting reactions, but in a much much different way. Yeah, so we're going to talk about the newest Pet Cemetery. Yay! Yay. <laughs> now, just to backtrack a little bit, I am not a fan of the original movie, of the original Pet Cemetery. I know you haven't seen it, but I figured that was, it's probably best to disclose that. I just, it, even when I was younger, it didn't scare me, and it was very boring to me. Um, and for further clarity, I haven't read the book. <laughs> so he's, have you? I have not read the book either. Yeah, so most of my knowledge comes from this remake and from the movie that came out in uh, 1983. So take that as you will. I'm sure some book fan will correct us on every little thing. Please do. Please do. I'm, I'm curious. We like to learn. We do like to learn. Well, the original novel by Stephen King was written in 1983, and it was nominated for a World Fantasy Award for Best Novel in 1986. Um, when I hear people talk about Pet Cemetery, it's usually very fondly. Uh, either the book or the original movie. Uh, this, I think this is a story that really has spooked people, <laughs> to say the least. I don't know. I don't... I think I've actually heard of more people talking about actual pet cemeteries than this actual story. Are you serious? By Stephen King. Yeah, and I think... I think I've only ever heard someone say that once. <laughs> so, I don't... I never knew about this story. That's interesting, because... Uh, for me, before I had even seen the movie, this was one that I'd heard about before as one of like the required viewings. I don't know how true, how universal that is, uh, but for me, I've always known about it even before I saw it. I was also, I also grew up like extremely uncultured when it came to film, especially anything related to horror film. It just was not a part of my viewing habits. So maybe maybe that's the case. I don't know. Uh, but for at least everyone I know really respects this novel and the original film. So it, it's a good thing this movie's coming out because it's really tapping into that, you know, that repressed Catholic market that didn't get the story the first or the second time around. <laughs> there you go. Well, the new film premiered at South by Southwest Festival on March 16, 2019, and it released in the United States on April 5, 2019. So, this is kind of an odd case because it's directed by two people. That's always a good sign, you know, when you need two people to direct things. Now, no, I'm not saying that a directing pair can't be good. Right. I mean, look at... An example that's good. I mean, yeah, people are going to throw out Stranger Things with the Russo brothers or uh, the Matrix series with the Wachowski sisters, but come on, guys. Uh, can we... Can we I, I could give you Stranger Things and say, yeah, that's a directing pair that is doing a good job and knows their stuff, uh, especially with the first season of Stranger Things, but are we really going to go out on a limb and say that, you know... Directing pairs have traditionally done really well in cinema. Hey, the directors of Harold and Kumar, I think, they also did, uh, you know, the Whoa. fourth American Pie installment. <laughs> you heard it here from the film studies student. Look. This is the required reading that we're getting. I think maybe you're being a little harsh, but personally, that's just me. Really, because this this film did not inspire me to, you know, 
be really sympathetic or generous with my hot takes. You know who a good directing pair is? Who's that? Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris. And you know, they directed your absolute favorite movie of all time. Oh, boy. Little Miss Sunshine, which you can hear all of Jeremy's wonderful thoughts on that beautiful movie in another episode of Input 2. So go check that out. He actually really hates that movie, but I love it. So I think it's a good example. It's fine. It's a great movie, it's Jeremy. fine. Anyway, so this film was directed by Kevin Kolsch and Dennis Widmere. I have never heard of them prior to this. Have you? I mean, I've known people named Kevin before, but well, that's it. They're all, it's all just Kevin. It's all the same guy. Uh, good job, man. Congrats. But these two are kind of interesting because literally their IMD page is exactly the same. Like, it doesn't look like they've gone off and made anything independent of one another, or at least anything notable. So they've both worked on, like, three episodes of the Scream TV series. And if you know me, Scream is my absolute favorite movie of all time, and I'm talking the original Scream. The other ones are, whatever, we won't get into that. But that, you know, the, the Scream TV series hurts me, um, so they hurt me. And that's all I'll say about that. They also directed a short in the horror anthology movie, Holidays, which was released in 2016. And Jeremy and I have both actually watched that. We watched it randomly. We picked it on Netflix one night. And it was wild. And you know what's interesting? The film they directed is the worst one. Now, when we say the film was wild, we mean wild in how just... Odd? It was strange. Not good. Some, well, some were obviously better than others. Like, the Easter one was so odd. Okay, the Easter one just seems like someone had some really high-minded, weird concept <laughs> that so... they couldn't really figure out how to communicate. It was interesting, but the Valentine's Day one that they directed was the most boring. I completely forgot it existed. Which one was that? Yeah, exactly. It's just like... Somebody died on Valentine's Day. I, I swear I've watched it, but I cannot remember anything about it. It's very boring. It's the first one in the anthology. You'll forget it. You'll remember Easter. What can I tell you? And then they, they're they probably their most known or best work was Starry Eyes. And this one actually, um, it has relatively decent reviews. I personally haven't seen it, but a lot of people refer to it as like the sleeper hit. But, uh, you know, they don't really have a big portfolio of work here. So they're kind of like one of those... They're kind of like directors that, that can go either way. They can either really improve from here, or they can, uh, you know, continue with this odd little trend of doing not popular things. I don't know. We'll see. So I was curious how they actually, like, started working together, just because duo pairs are interesting. You don't see them very often. In an interview of the Austin Chronicle, they talk about how they worked together in film school, but they didn't go to the same school. <laughs> It's kind of odd. And they basically like helped each other with their solo projects and it just kind of became a standard thing. They really don't have like a major backstory. That's just kind of it. So what you're telling me is my characterization of this pair at the beginning of the episode is more or less correct because they're helping each other with their own solo projects and they need each other to direct a single film. I'm sorry, this is very critical, but also I don't have a very high opinion of this film. You're aggressive. <laughs> You're very aggressive. But you know what? I'm not going to disagree with you. But let's get into Pet Cemetery. So first off, the original Pet Cemetery film in 1989, directed by Mary Lambert, is not a good movie. Let's just get that out of the way. I know some people like it, but it's not well made at all. And it, you know what? You can say, I like it and still say it's a bad movie. You know, 
that's a totally valid thing. Just because we say it's not a well-made movie, you can still like it. Uh, for me, the biggest issue is pacing, but uh, we're not going to talk too much about this movie. It has a 50% critical score on Rotten Tomatoes and a 59% audience score. That's low. And I will say, the critic score, they only had like 30-something ratings, but for the audience score, it was like in the thousands. So this is a low score for audiences, especially for a Stephen King work. Yeah. So let's keep that in mind going forward. The recent Pet Cemetery has a 59% critical score and a 43% audience score. So full disclosure, when we first started looking into this, uh, it was in the 60s, maybe closer to the 70s. It might have been in the low 70s. I don't remember, but it was higher than the score. A lot higher. It was a lot higher. And uh, it dropped down pretty rapidly. <laughs> so I, I'm not sure audiences are really digging this film on the whole. Yeah, and the critics seem to be souring as time goes on. Jeremy, do you want to read some critical? Oh, goodness, please. Oh, gosh, here we go. All right, so this is the most disgusting review I think I've ever read. Spiciest hot take I've ever seen. All right, I'm, I'm excited. All right, so this is from Entertainment Weekly, written by Chris Nashawaddy, titled Pet Cemetery is the scariest and best Stephen King movie in years. What's wrong with that? Uh, it's just a factual error <laughs> that they let slip through the cracks. <laughs> I mean, that could be his valid opinion. That's great, but it's wrong. <laughs> All right. Okay. Noted. All right. So we've got some choice, choice quotes from this review. Normally, we'll just read a short little excerpt from the review. But this one, it's just, it speaks to me. And it hurts me in so many different ways. Towards the end of the review, directors Colshan Widmeyer, who previously directed the underseen 2014 horror sleeper Starry Eyes, turn the screws on the audience with jolting joy buzzer glee, and their pet cemetery dares to go to far darker places than you would think from a big studio movie like this. Something that it could have used more of, frankly. Eventually, you may find yourself laughing because the alternative is to dig your fingernails into your armrest. That's because of the film's standard horror movie jump and jolts and misdirections, of course. But it's also because King's supernatural story is rooted in a pretty heady meditation on grief. And? Oh, this is just all false. You've heard. You've just been lied to. I'm so sorry that we did this to you. <laughs> Normally, this is not how you're supposed to handle fake news and stuff like that. You're not supposed to repeat it, but we just couldn't help ourselves. I guess I'm confused what he thought was so scary. Right. Like, he literally says the scary part is how ordinary the jump scares are. Yeah, and that, that's completely contradictory. Weirdly enough, the entire review is glowing, but he gives it a B-plus at the end. It's very odd. Maybe this is somebody who had nostalgia for the original, so they just kind of went in with a completely optimistic lens and came out just satisfied. I don't know, because I, I'm fine with people having a different opinion. It's just what they say is strange considering the movie that I saw. And he even, like the like you said, like with the jump scares, like that is, they takes away from the scare. And he even says that. It's not like his opinion is that they're actually scary. So that's very confusing. <laughs> Also, I really want to know what heady films this person has seen to characterize Pet Cemetery as having this, like, mature conversation about how to handle grief. I think the ideas are there, but those ideas aren't from this film. It's from Stephen King. 
and they're not well executed. They're not well developed. Yeah, it's it's very odd. But let's move on because that review does make me feel ill. <laughs> so let's get out of here. This film had a budget of twenty one million, and I guess it kind of looks like that. You know, it's and it, it's the most average looking movie I've ever seen. Uh, there are one or two scenes where they kind of go for a more surrealist look. Yeah, and that's kind of effective actually it is it's kind of like this small moment in the film where you just go wait these directors can do this like they have the vision and the ability to execute on that to make this sequence why have i been watching this movie yeah if i could be watching that other stylized movie that's fun to watch yeah it's a little odd and you know what i think audiences thought that as well because while it brought in money, the scores indicate a boringness of this movie. And when we say uh, that it brought in money, how much money is that exactly? $43,394,794 so far. So, for a general film budget thing, you generally have to make back half you have to make back double of what your production budget was just to break even when you factor in the other expenses like, you know, your advertising, PR, all that stuff. So this film, while it looks like it did really well, it's just barely breaking even so far. But do we think it will break even? I mean, will, it will be lucrative later. Maybe. I I don't think so. I mean, I don't either. We're in the middle of April, which is which seems like a really not great time to release a horror film. It's odd, too, because there are a lot of things coming out around now that are horror-related. Like, we have La, La, uh, La Llorona coming out, uh, and I feel like it's kind of... We're just putting the movies we know aren't going to do terribly well all in, like, the sleeper months. Yeah, like, this is... Like, we've just had movies like... Captain Marvel, we're about to have Hellboy out. This is not horror movie month. No. And, you know, this film can profit pretty much just based on the fact that it's Stephen King, and they know that. (laughs) So, and, you know, the real Stephen King movie, It Part 2, is coming out later this year. And they know, like, they don't need, they they just put Stephen King's name on it, and it's like, we don't have to try too much. (laughs) Oh, yeah, no, they'll, they'll come if we build it. They will come. It's true. So now we're going to kind of get into spoiler territory. I say this every time. I don't really know why you're here to talk about this film if you haven't seen the film or if you're not familiar with the book or whatever, but this is your warning that we are going to spoil plot details. So let's get into it. Let's talk about what this movie is about. Uh, Jeremy, why why don't you start? Uh, This film is... It thinks it's smarter than it is, I guess. I didn't really get the feeling that the film was trying to have this really intense discussion on anything, but throughout the film we see this motif of grief and with dealing with death and different characters succeeding and failing in different ways at doing this and seeing what the consequences are when you just can't let go. Right. So it's a movie about being sad? I mean, on an emotional level, yeah, but it's also a movie about undead things and native magic. So 
We start out the film with a family moving to a small-town Maine city, Ludlow, Maine, to get away from their busy, bustling Boston life. <laughs> that sounds like you ripped it right off of Wikipedia. But did you? I didn't. No, oh, I'm staring straight at you. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you read it earlier. That's so funny. No, they go to escape the hustle and bustle of the city, but tragedy ensues oh when God. a family cat is killed. Okay, now you sound like the summary on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> but yeah, that is basically what happens. The cat dies, and the neighbor of the place they move into is like, oh man, that sucks. I really like your daughter. Let's resurrect your dead cat, even though that breaks the laws of nature, and I've seen the consequences firsthand. And they do. They bring back the cat. But the cat's like evil. Yeah, it's like, it's dirty, it's got matted hair, and it's just an emo punk for the rest of the movie. I love to imagine, like, the makeup and, like, costume designers, they have to go and make the cat look dirty, and I'm sure the cat loved that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But basically, later, the kid dies. The daughter dies because she runs into the street... Because the <laughs> because they take the cat away because it's evil, and the cat returns and she sees she's sad the cat is gone. She sees it in the street walking back, so she goes to greet it, and some really weird slow motion truck accident <laughs> with like questionable CGI happens. Yeah, oh, I love it when she like she literally goes like full of, okay, we don't see her actually go flying on screen, but we can tell it hit her and she went flying. There is no blood. She's like perfect, and it's really funny. No bruises. No <laughs> nothing they're all running slow motion to her but she's it looks like she's just like taking a little nap you know like she's good this is a semi yeah like she, going full speed they should have just not shown her body at all if they wanted to go that route yeah it was odd but basically the same guy that helped the main character lewis resurrect the cat he's like well you know don't do that with your daughter because you saw what happened to the cat but obviously lewis is like well i'm gonna do that with my daughter and she comes back and she's evil and she ends up killing them all basically and then resurrecting them. Yeah, so that she's kind of made like a family of undead beings. And the super sad, scary part is the end. Um, the toddler and the family's locked in the car because they were trying to keep him, you know, safe. And it ends with them going up to him and they're going to set him on fire. And you're supposed to feel feelings. Um, I thought that was kind of cool. <laughs> I was like, yeah, burn him! Because, you know, I'm a monster and I love horror movies and I have a problem. And I was very bored at this point in the movie, so... Oh, it was so boring. Yes. Uh, the big... The, you know, we summarized that in like a minute. Now, I'm not saying that summaries are, you know, accurate to every event that happens in a film. They're not. Obviously, the film's going to take like two hours. But literally, the be- we don't actually get to the point where the daughter dies until like... I want to say an hour in. No, my summary, my long-winded little summary that sounded like a Wikipedia thing that just focused on, like, the background context of the film, that's way more appropriate in how long the film feels. It feels like it just takes forever to set up these characters, to set up the situation, just so we can get to the undead carnage that we all paid our ticket money for. And, you know, I don't mind slow burners as long as, you know, there is character development, it's interesting, we grow to like people, you know, that type of thing. The problem is they have all of this time and it feels like they don't utilize it. I have, I watched the entire movie and I feel like I know nothing about any of the characters outside of, like, the very surface-level information. Like, I could... Like, the main character is a dad. Cool. The mom is traumatized by a childhood experience. Yay. 
His daughter's just a little girl. That's it. She likes her cat and she feels lonely. It's literally just me as a kid. It's just me. <laughs> um, the toddler literally is just a prop. He toddles. He toddles. Um, and then, True to form. And then the neighbor is the old widower who holds the secret knowledge. Yeah, I liked him the most, but he still didn't have a character very much. It, it's interesting because out of all the performances, the little girl does the best job. Um, this is not like an us situation where the kids are like incredible and I want to see more of them per se. But the little girl is decent. There are some points where she actually is legitimately creepy. And I think she did a really good job. I don't know how much of that is just her acting or just like... You know, someone told her, like, hey, just be stoic. And her being a kid naturally just makes it kind of creepy. I don't know. I didn't... I don't think I ever found her creepy, like, in a sense where, like, I was personally creeped out. But she seemed like she was the closest thing to an actual human being in the film. Well, I'm thinking of one scene. Oh, yeah. The one where... They're laying in bed. Okay, so she comes back from the dead, and obviously her dad is very excited. They're both laying in bed, and the dad's slowly starting to realize, like, oh my gosh, she's not the same. And the way she's just staring at the ceiling, like, I'm dead, daddy, aren't I? And it's all just very unsettling. Um, the most effective part of that scene is what they do with her eyes, how one is more open than the other. <laughs> yeah, no, they do a really great job with her design. When she comes back, like, one eye is way higher than the other. I don't know, way might be an exaggeration, but it's very noticeable. And she looks just broken, like someone put her back together incorrectly. She looks like she was in the middle of a really good nap. You know, those really good naps you have in the middle of the day when you need it. And then someone just yanked her out of it like 10 minutes in and she is not having it for the rest of the day. So I want to give that shout out to Jet Lawrence who played Ellie, the daughter. Uh, I want to see more of you and I want to see I want to see you do more roles and see how you develop from here. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely fair. She was easily, for me, the most believable actor, both when, mostly when she was dead. Yeah, mostly when she was dead. Yeah. Um, Jason Clark played Lewis Creed. Oh my gosh, you know, we talk about this a lot, uh, where, like, you just hire some random white guy, and it's just him. This is the epitome of that. He's just some white dude. I cannot think he's a dad. Yeah, he gets kind of angry sometimes, but not angry enough to make you feel anything. Um, we're told that he feels certain things, but we never see it. Like we're told he really, really loves his kids and everything. I, I guess that's assumed, but like we don't really see him spend that much time with his kids or anything. Like really, this guy just underreacts to everything my favorite scene in this movie is when the cat dies and judd the neighbor's like come with me and he takes the corpse of the family cat and he just runs off and lewis follows him and it's like willy wonka and willy wonka in the chocolate factory was like no wait stop don't because he's like where are we going and literally judd takes him like over like some broken trees and like into this deep part of the woods or at some freaking temple somewhere. It looks like they've gone at least a mile. It's like nighttime now. And Lewis is just like, he doesn't question any of this. And he very obviously Judd is having him do a ritual. Like he even asks, he's like, am I, am I doing like a ritual? Like, what am I doing here? He still does it. And like, like then he acts upset 
at Judd for taking him there, but like not once did he even go, can I just have my corpse back, please? <laughs> like, See, I saw these signs much, much earlier in the film. That's just like the epitome of it. But for me, the real red flag is at the beginning when, you know, he gets set, he gets settled into his new profession as like a school nurse or something like that. And, <laughs> you know, someone comes in with a car who's been hit by a car and... Really, this is where all the money went into, like, effects and everything. Yeah, that was it's, gross. It was, like, it was pretty well done. But the guy dies. And, you know, Lewis walks away. And then he sees the guy bolt upright on the gurney table after having bled out. And he starts talking to him. He even says his name. Like, he didn't. the guy wouldn't have known Lewis's name. And literally, he just kind of acts like, oh... That was mildly disconcerting. Wow, what wacky things happen in this new town, am I right? Yeah, it, he does very much just kind of like, oh, that's that's odd. Uh, and even you can tell like he's trying to act shaken, but it really just doesn't work very well. It's like the classic, you know, horror movie, like, oh, I'm startled. Because <laughs> that's about all he can manage to do. Like, he's looking for his daughter after he hears rustling around the house after he's buried her. And he comes around to the basement and he finds one of those weird animal masks the kids are wearing in the trailers, which never factor back into the It wasn't the movie. even in the original. I have no idea what it was about. It was just for an interesting trailer shot with those homemade masks. Now, he... now like, speaking about those masks, you know who else super underreacts to everything? His wife, Rachel. Like, literally, she's the first people... She's the only person to see these people, if I'm, like... Am I forgetting? I think she, she at least, is the only one that comes close to interacting with them at the beginning of the film. Yeah, I think you're... I think you're right. I don't remember, but they... Literally, this parade of people in, his, like, in the masks come by. And not just any people. Small people. Scary small young children. people. And literally, her daughter... Rachel's daughter, Ellie, you know, like she just runs after them and they're watching and they're obviously doing like some ceremony and the and her reaction is literally just like I don't know what they're doing, honey. And like I cannot stress enough, they have a dead dog in a wheelbarrow. This is their backyard. Like they okay, yeah, they apparently own this property and didn't know there was a pet cemetery on it and there this like train of people with dead animals is coming through their backyard where their child plays and she's like Oh, that's weird. I didn't know that was here. That's a liability suit waiting to happen. You have 50 acres behind your house. You need to know what kind of risks you could be liable for if kids wander onto your property and get themselves hurt. Okay, but they could just have a suit to make it so that none of them can go on the property again. It's, it's very bizarre. It's just a whole weird scenario that added up to nothing. It was obviously just made for the trailer and it's really aggravating because they're probably the creepiest thing in this movie, but they aren't anything. Yeah. And you know, something else that really irks me about Rachel. Um, so the, her entire plot line, it's a little different from the book. In the book, um, Rachel's sister dies of meningitis, and that's basically it. She dies of meningitis, and it's extremely, you know, it's it's terrifying for her. <laughs> and she feels a lot of guilt. In the movie, she, like, she has what I assume is meningitis. I don't explicitly say it. But she falls down like the sh like what's it called a dumb waiter a dumb waiter yeah and she like dies and it's so over the top I can't help but laugh like she just went crashing down in a flashback and I started laughing like an insane person. Well, it it just struck me as being so weird and 
the side story with the mom and her past, it just felt like padding. Yeah. Because we already got the information that her sister died and that it was traumatic and that she never really moved on. We get all of that when they're just in their new house. But for some reason, the filmmakers feel compelled to do flash several flashback sequences just so we can see how mangled and twisted and gross her sister's body is. Yeah. It's just some cheap body horror. It is. It's, it really, you know, considering Rachel isn't even, like, the main character, it's just odd how much attention is given to that. Um, I understand it could be implemented in a way that actually impacts her decisions later. And I kind of get it because, like, you know, the whole point is later she's the one instead of her husband that's like, uh, no, that's not our daughter. Why did you do this? Which is out of character for her because she, throughout the film, has shown that she just cannot accept death. So you would assume that she'd be the one that would be like, oh, no, this is my daughter. But it switches. It's Lewis who is shown to be, like, the practical, rational. He's kind of portrayed as an atheist. Uh, yeah, he's like, I don't really believe in an afterlife. And the neighbor, elderly, you know, guy is like, you know, this magic is more than what a doctor brain like yours can understand. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's it's strange. But Rachel, I feel, except for the end of the film where she at least does some stuff, is just really underutilized. And it hurts other characters in the film. Yeah. It hurts it's... Lewis more so than anybody else. Um, yeah, the kids, like we said, the toddler's a toddler, the little girl's a little girl. I, there's not really much to them. Uh, let's get into some of the weird differences, though. So, okay, okay. In the book, there's the Wendigo. And the Wendigo is really important to the pet cemetery because he essentially is what resurrects people and kind of possesses people once they're back from the dead. And that's a big plot point. But in the movie, it's not at all mentioned. This is not just restricted to this movie. The other Pet Cemetery movie also kind of doesn't use the Wendigo. But what's weird here is they mention it. Like, it's a little Easter egg. In, well, not even an Easter egg, because they blatantly draw attention to it. Um, Several times. But they don't actually mention it as, like, the cause of anything. You're, it's, so if you know what the Wendigo actually does, you you can make assumptions that, like, oh, that noise is the Wendigo. Um and that might have been the intent, so they're like, you can... Maybe they're like, ooh, it leaves it open for speculation, but there's nothing to speculate, so that'd be stupid. It's just, I don't know. Yeah, they, they listed one option of what it could possibly be. <laughs> yeah. A Wendigo. If they weren't going to actually utilize it, they should have just not mentioned it. Because we're already... We already have a massive suspension of disbelief. You know, there's a pet cemetery that brings people back to life. Give us some Langoliers Easter eggs. Like, we're working in the Stephen King universe, you know? Let's get some of those. Let's draw on that inspiration. You mean, like, terrible CGI? Or maybe, like, we could have had, like, a red balloon. And we could be like, is this Pennywise? Why would you say that to me? My biggest pet peeve, he, now I have to go on this tangent, is when kids in movies hold red balloons. And once I've, if you haven't noticed that, it's not uncommon. I'm not saying like I'm a genius or anything. You will never unsee it. And I feel every time I see a red balloon on film, I get angry. Like I actually start clenching my jaw. And I'm like, oh, what subtle symbolism? But no, Jeremy, the answer is no. If they put a red balloon in this movie, it goes from like a 59% to a 2%. So thank you very much much 
And if it's not a balloon, it's something just like red. singular red and round. Like in us, the lollipop is red at the beginning. The caramel apple. Thank you. Whatever it was. But yeah, aside from that little tangent, because I can't stand that trope, the Wendigo is just odd. They had talked about potentially using it in early stages of the film, though they don't really tell us like concretely how they're planning. In an interview with Slash Film, uh, when they were talking about if the Wendigo was going to actually be in the film, screenwriter Jeff Bueller said, there isn't anything you could think of that we didn't try once. And that's the most vague answer. Uh, so, I, I mean, yeah, I guess that means that they did try to use it, but we don't know why they ultimately decided against it. I definitely want to see the version of the script where the Wendigo joins the family and it becomes like some sitcom. Like the Munsters? Yeah, yeah, that's... <laughs> I want that version of Pet Cemetery. Can you imagine how terrible that thing would look in CGI, though? Like, honestly, the decision not to use it is a good one, but they should have at least, okay, like I said, they either should have just not used it at all and let this Pet Cemetery just be this magical thing without the Wendigo, or they should have added more lore about the Wendigo and, put, like, done more to showcase it without actually visually showcasing it. Yeah, because... Correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought Wendigos in general were more about, like, cannibalism and winter and starvation and greed as opposed to, like, necromancy. Yeah, to my knowledge, and I haven't been able to find a clear answer as to why Stephen King wrote it this way, that's true. Uh, typically, like, a good modern example of the Wendigo is in... Uh, Until Dawn. Thank you, Until Dawn the Game. That's the one that I've always heard it associated with. Um so I, I, but I'm not an expert in this area, so I yeah, don't. Neither know. am I. So I, that's interesting. But yeah, I, it's it just kind of there. It's just kind of this like cryptid that runs around doing things. I guess it runs around doing things and making noises off screen. Spooky. But yeah, another interesting difference is, and they make a really, everyone's made a really big deal about this. In the original, it's not the daughter that's killed; it's the toddler, the son, Gage. Now, I have, a, I, have a th I have a thought, but first let me read this lovely little quote from film producer Lorenzo Di Bonavent. From producer, Loren <laughs> from producer Lorenzo Di Bonaventura. He told Entertainment Weekly, Trust me, we were nervous about it, referring to the change to focus on the little girl as opposed to Gabe. I feel this way about anything that you remake or update. If we gave you what you had before, we didn't do the subject matter much good. I'm very protective of movies, too, but I want a new experience each time and feel like filmmakers have really thought about the choice. That was one we thought, all right. That was when we thought, all right, let's make the choice. Now, here's the thing. <laughs> I, I'm not a purist when it comes to, like, changing material for movies. I understand that adaptions have to make changes for film. That's just how it goes. However, some changes are completely unnecessary. Uh, some changes are changed, and it's a neutral change. It doesn't affect the film either way. And this is one of them. Yay, it's a neutral change. But the way they're framing it is like, yeah, this is something that we've done to make it new and creative. No, no, it's not. Okay, no, it's not. Um, first off, the story does not change at all. The characters are already so non-important in terms of like development. They're, they're props for the story uh, that you could switch them out and that doesn't change at all. Second, the only reason... Second, the only reason you did that is because toddlers are harder to film. Let's be real. 
Let's be completely honest here. Yeah, fully transparent. That's the only reason why this happened is because uh, child is much easier to give direction to and to get good quality film out of than a three-year-old. Yeah, and that would be fine. I'd be completely fine with him saying that. But they're, like the framing of that quote is just like, yeah, you know, we're not doing the material justice if we don't change it. Like, what? Come on. Come on. We're not stupid. Whatever. But a lot of people are really upset about this change, which I don't understand because it is literally the exact same story. Nothing changed. Um, I was even talking to a friend and he mentioned that like he was upset that the trailer spoiled that it would be the little girl. And I'd seen the movie and he had it at this point. And I was like, it nothing changes. Um, so, yeah, they do frame it like the marketing for this film did frame this as like this huge new thing, which is super manipulative because it's not at all. It's such an inconsequential change that it just doesn't matter at all. Yeah, I feel like this film was made with a trailer in mind first, and then they just kind of filled out the rest from there. Yep. It's it's not... Like, we're both aware that's not how film trailers and films are made, but that's just how it feels. Yeah, please don't comment. We we know. We're, we're aware. I'm yeah, don't actually <laughs> Actually, us. did you know that uh, film trailers are made after the filming? Like, thank you. Thank you, friend. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa! Better quit film school. Didn't know that. Another kind of odd change, this one's not a major one, is that Judd's wife is dead in the film. Um, in the book, she is not. So her name is Nancy, and... Nancy's very sick, and eventually Lewis has to give her CPR, and he saves her life. Interestingly, because Lewis saved Judd's wife's life, that is why he decides to help bring Ellie's cat back. And that makes so much more sense. Yeah, a life for a life. Literally in the movie. (laughs) And I get what they're trying to do. They're trying to be like, wow, Judd just really had this connection to this little girl. And that's why he risked everything to bring the cat back, even though he knows the consequences. He's just a lonely old man with literally nothing to live for. And this random little girl, I guess, gave him a reason to live. Yeah, but the problem is they don't have any charming scenes together, really. Like... Okay, he pulls a beast, like a beast stinger out of her and she breaks into his house. Yes, yeah, that happens. She breaks into his house and insults him. And he does. it's not really like framed in a charming way. It's kind of odd. It's more just like in a, oh, do you see the inside of Judd's house? Do you see this gun? You better remember that because it might be important later on in the movie. But We're good filmmakers because we know how to reincorporate things. But Jeremy, if they don't constantly show us important items, how will we remember it? I, I genuinely don't know. If they <laughs> don't show us a literal Chekhov's gun, <laughs> then how are we going to... And if they don't show half the killing in the actual trailer... How will we know who with, lives and who dies? Right. I need someone to tell me before I see the movie so I can follow. Okay, I was genuinely angry when we got to the point where uh, Ellie was trying to attack Judd because in the trailer, I think it was the second trailer, there was a super prominent clip of her using like a scalpel to sever his Achilles tendon while he was on the stairs. And I was just like, okay, well, all literally all of the tension in this scene is gone. Yeah, that's Thanks, too guys. much. Like, that does reveal too much. It's pretty boring. Thank you, trailer. 
it, it's the entire thing is just such an odd experience. I any enjoyment I got was probably unintentional. Like the creepy factor of it made me laugh rather. But I, to be fair, I don't get scared by horror movies. It's very hard to freak me out. So, you know, it might be more effective for somebody else. Uh, but for me, I, the best parts were with Ellie when she was being creepy and I thought they were funny and how under, and how Lewis underreacted to everything I thought was really funny. And then the one time where he randomly really overreacts, but not through his emotion, <laughs> but in what he does in how he just like randomly is having drinks with Judd after his daughter's funeral is over and he just decides, yep, time to drug him. <laughs> yeah, that was so odd. It was like... All right, I guess I guess we're doing this with no again with no build up or showing how he felt really about this. It's just him doing his turn to just be stoic and kind of angry. <laughs> it's, it's just such a waste. Um, so something I wanted to highlight is Stephen King actually. <laughs> so there were like three endings that they were trying to choose from, and Stephen King actually pitched one, and they didn't go for it. What? I had no idea about this. Tell me more. Okay, so King pitched this idea and he told Entertainment Weekly, quote, I talked about an ending where the toddler, Gage, is walking up the middle of the road. We see Dawn and we hear a truck coming and think, oh my God, he's going to get greased in the road. That's how this is going to end. Then at the last second, this woman pulls him out of the road and rescues him and says, where's your mommy and daddy? And that's how you end the thing. That's that's really what Stephen King pitched. He said, uh, and he even like kind of I can't I think he's being kind of tongue in cheeky about this. He's like, I like a happy ending. <laughs> I don't know. That's really that's really it though. I mean, like to be fair, I like that a lot more than the ending that we got. Yeah. Just because it still has this like horror implication of like, oh, the baby's gonna point to his mommy and daddy who are like chasing him along the road. Wasn't that part of it? What? Or like that he no that he's gonna point back to his house and then they're gonna go back and see that the family's resurrected or something like that. Yeah, uh, I think I think this was posed as like, well, this way Gabe lives and like the toddler doesn't have to deal with the repercussions of what his family did, but like I don't like that. Uh, I like I like the darkness of it. Um, I'm not saying it's well done, but I like the idea of just like it ends. If this if this was done better, like it ends with the toddler in the car about to be burned to death, and I laughed really hard. Um, something's wrong with me, but um, I liked it. I like that. Um, I don't know, Steve. Stephen for Stephen King to pull like a well, you know, it'll be fine. Is kind of just weird to me. I don't know, I could see making that like a, oh, let's draw in more people besides just the family. This is a, a nightmare of, you know, greater proportions. It's hard that to could say. Be, that could be pulled off pretty it, well. It could be. It's just hard because we have no idea what the motive is at all. So it's hard for me to agree or disagree with you because the movie didn't give me any indication of what the like the goal of turning more people into undead even is. Right, right. We also didn't know if they ran out of the twenty-one million by that point and just like couldn't afford the truck rental. Because <laughs> like twenty-one million is not a ton to make a film. It's it's odd, but I did want to throw that out there as a weird thing. Um. 
So we have to talk about this. This is the most exciting part about the movie. There were five cats that played the cat church. And this is very important. So I really hope everybody's listening because uh, they've been parading one of the cats around, Leo. He's like this beautiful mancoon, and he's been wearing a tie at all these like shoots and everything, and he is perfect and hands down the best thing in this film. And the other four cats too. I I guess the girl too. Yeah. I guess Ellie. Okay, but think of how hard it is to train cats. Yeah. No. <laughs> like, legit. Yes. When you put it in that context, if the cats do not like collectively get a nod for best supporting actors. <laughs> Uh, this this is a travesty. Can you imagine being an actor, actress, and waiting for your name to go up, and you don't get called, but a freaking cat does? A, like, gaggle of five Maine Coon cats gets corralled up the aisles at the Oscar. I would, I'm really here for that. If you're listening, somebody on the Oscar committee, please, for Emily Rubin, do this. Listen to us, Academy. We know how to bounce up those viewership numbers you've been losing them with the oscars you tried the no host thing now try nominating cats please do it but didn't you tell me like because the original film they used a british short hair cat right but british <laughs> you i think you're the one you just told me that uh, british short-haired cats are hard to find right uh well the director said well we saw that the the cat is named Church after Winston Churchill, so in the original 80s movie, they chose a British short hair cat, and they were like, that cat is gorgeous. We're not going to try to like outdo that cat with another British short hair, so we're just going to try to find our own cat. And so they were like milling around, you know, trying to figure out which ending to do, and then they were like, wait a minute, let's just look at the book cover. And they saw a Maine Coon, and they were like, okay. That works. Let's do it. And then they were like, wait a minute. Th- this is going to be hard to find all these Maine Coon cats. And so then they just talked to a bunch of Maine Coon cat trainers and were like, can you help us find a bunch of Maine Coons that look the same? And that was how they got church. I wonder what a casting call for cats is. I, I honestly want to know. I, I would kill to get an interview with somebody who trains cats for film. And like how, because not only do they have to look the same, they have to have a temperament that makes them good for the film. Like how? I'm so curious. But anyway, the cats really steal the show. Um, and it, like they have their own personalities and everything that they had to work with. It's they normal. said that each cat had its own specialty for like on-screen action. So there was one cat that was really good at just sitting in one spot and just staring there was another one that was really good at hissing uh there was another one that was really good at jumping places which you know is very important so you know we just there was a lot of talent in these cats (laughs) i'm really here for an oscar nom i'm calling leo baby i'm here for you all right maybe not nominate best cats for best supporting actor I can see that. But instead of the best, like, popular movie category, maybe we make a new category about animal companions in film. All right, there we go. See, maybe this film will contribute something to society. Just maybe. I mean, even though there are films that use animals that are much more talented, (laughs) and that hasn't happened yet, but, you know, whatever. This could be that watershed moment for animals in film. (laughs) You know, as much as I love talking about cats... We should probably talk about theme, because I could get I could talk about these cats all day. They're so perfect. They're great. 
but this film is is trying to you know comment on something even though the film itself really isn't it's more of just like Stephen King was and they tried to incorporate that so the biggest theme in Stephen King's novel is grief and dealing with it and seeing how all the characters deal with it. So Rachel, the mother, deals with her grief by trying not to deal with it. She tries to just kind of avoid topics of death and, you know, that type of thing. You know, when they're talking to their daughter about death, she goes, well, maybe we just tell her that, like, they're looking down on her from heaven and so don't have to worry about them being dead. Just tell them that the cat ran away. You know, just kick the can down the road. And Lewis, by contrast, which is just a bizarre scenario uh, because it makes it seem like they've never talked about their religious differences before getting married. Uh, But Lewis is more of like the realist, the theist. He sees, you know, death as a part of life and a natural thing that shouldn't be like shied away from. So when, you know, he's talking to his daughter, he says it very matter of fact, like the cat died. Right. He's... A doctor, so he kind of even medicalizes it a bit and is like, you know, well, this is just the other part of life, and it's what happens when your organs fail. Yeah. Uh, so we have that dynamic. The way we don't really get too much into kids, but Ellie is interesting because she deals with grief by like just kind of doing what kids do. And it's all, it's honestly really funny to watch her because one second she's sad about the cat, then she gets a stuffed animal, and then she's like, yeah, my birthday. <laughs> and then she dies five seconds after, uh, which I think is fairly uh, inaccurate for kids. Like, you know, I've had cats, they've died, and I went into crippling depressions. <laughs> but maybe that's just me. <laughs> maybe. But yeah, basically, the mother and father deal with grief in the complete opposite way. Uh, the film... I would say it it succeeds in doing the flip in their perspective, but I don't think it's warranted. Uh, for Lewis, he randomly just decides like, no, 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 this is good, this is good. Uh, bringing our daughter back from the dead is good. She's this is our daughter. Hug your daughter. That's your daughter. And Rachel's like, that's that's not my daughter. What is that thing? You dug up our daughter's grave, <laughs> like. Um, She's probably thinking, like, we paid so much money for that casket, (laughs) or, like, someone donated a lot for that. Look at her dress. It's dirty. (laughs) Like, what is this? It's just kind of weird, because we don't get to see Lewis actually grieve or go through any of the motions. Uh, So, this is very unwarranted. Like, it's fine if you want to write your characters so that they have this really big perspective change. But show the audience the change. We never get to see that moment where, like, he breaks with reality. He got kind of sad at the funeral. And I do mean kind of sad. Like, he was just, he was stoically standing with a tear. <laughs> like, But not like an ugly cry like you would actually do at a child's funeral. It's a white man's cry. It's just, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it, our hero can't cry type of thing. Yeah, so grief is dealt with. Um, the ideas are interesting, uh, but they're not... In a ex- vacuum. Yeah, but they're not explored well. Um, that's why we don't really get the review we read at the beginning, because, yeah, the ideas explored here are really interesting, but they te- they dance around it. So I, I personally just don't think... It's a movie about grief, but that's it. It's not anything earth-shattering. Does- I mean, you walk out of the theater and the biggest thing you're grieving is wow this was a they killed this opportunity and it did not live up to its potential yeah they they even like they really hammered in like the dead should stay dead like thanks yeah we get it 
And, you know, when talking about the potential for a sequel... Uh, they've left it open-ended where I could see a studio trying, but Lauren D. Bonaventura said he actually is more open to a prequel of all things. Basically, he believes that the book has all this material that's talked about, like, there's this example of, like, a bull getting, like, resurrected and, like, going crazy in the streets. It's mentioned for a second in the movie, but they're like, we can make a movie surrounding instances like that in this little town. So basically, it would just be taking the lore of, of the book and, like, materializing it before the events of Pet Cemetery. That sounds terrible. It really, it really does. Um, you know, I, like I said, I'm pretty open to adaptions and creative freedom and but you know um considering that this movie wasn't very good i think maybe they should just let it go i mean what what is the fundamental lesson of pet cemetery it's that when things die and you try to bring them back they are never the same again how are they going to make another like moral out of that for a second film are we just going to do like what the conjuring does and just say oh thing bad Thing bad too. It'll just be the dead should really stay dead. <laughs> I don't know. It's gonna be dumb. Maybe it'll be something along the lines of, yeah, we already know that the dead should stay dead, but the living should keep on living. That's and, really deep, bro. And really live. I don't know if this would even make enough to warrant them getting the approval for that. I hope not. I hope not to. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, Stephen. You've made some great stories before. Uh, you might even make some cool ones later. I don't know. But uh, this this is just a no from me, fam. <laughs> Hard pass. All right. So with all of this in mind, what is, what's it looking like for Stephen King adaptions? Like, we have kind of an interesting trend. Like like we said, we have Gerald, we had Gerald's Game. We have It. It 2 is coming out. But then we have things like this. And things like The Dark Tower. Which I actually heard did pretty well. Eh. I, I have not seen it. But... Stephen King seems to be prime real estate right now. Are we going to see more remakes, or are we going to see stories that of his that haven't been brought to screen yet? What do you think? I think we're going to see a mix of the two. I think, I think that exploring the backlog of Stephen King stuff that hasn't been seen, shown in theaters will be interesting. But I also feel like studios are going to gravitate more towards stories that have already proven themselves to be somewhat successful or that at least have some name recognition. So I know that we're probably not going to get a remake of the Shawshank Redemption or The Shining, but we may get one of the other lesser-known titles that have already seen uh, screen adaptation. I also want to throw out that, you know, Stephen King doesn't like The Shining movie, so he decided he was going to make his own miniseries, and it is ten times worse than that movie. So if you haven't seen it, please go watch it, because it is hilarious. Um, I'm sorry, Stephen, you're not a director. I'm so sorry, but no. And I understand you wanted something closer to your book, and I would kill to see an adaption done well. But no, that's if, if, if we've been talking about this movie being bad, that series is... It is like Neil Breen almost level of, like, not that bad, but, you know, it's it's pretty funny. Okay, so if they were going to do a reboot of a past Stephen King film, which one would you look forward to the most? I know they wouldn't do it because there was already a really bad remake, but I'd love to see Carrie redone. I think in, it was in 2013 They made, somebody made a remake. Uh, don't quote me on that date, but it was really bad, so... 
I would like to see Carrie updated, uh, especially kind of seeing how they deal with, like, the whole bullying scenario, just because, like, what happens in the movie is so over the top, you know, like, um, I, I don't know, that story's always resonated with me, what about you? Maximum overdrive. I, I want evil trucks. I want evil <laughs> trucks. Okay. All right. Maximum overdrive is the perfect movie to watch with a group of friends with your favorite cold beverage that is non-alcoholic, of course. And, you know, just have a good time. No, but a serious answer would probably something be something like, uh, what is it, Misery? Yeah. Yeah, probably either Misery or... I don't know. I feel like we could get a really interesting adaptation of Cujo. Cujo? But see, the thing is, Cujo is always really great on its own. Like, Carrie, I also think is pretty great, um, but it needs to be... I think it could warrant an update. Cujo is really good. (laughs) So I don't know. um, But yeah, it's one of the better Stephen King stories, so I'd love to see it. But we need to start wrapping up. So do you have any final thoughts about this, you know, Pet Cemetery movie? Don't go see it or the remake. Uh, maybe just, and this this feels like sacrilege coming from a movie-focused, you know, a film-focused podcast, but maybe just bite the bullet and read a book. You know, read the original. I was about to say, are you, are you endorsing the book? Because I think you should. You know, I'm going to do some, you know, I'm going to do some self-promotion here. You should not go see this movie uh, because it's bad and boring. And I don't think it's worth the price of admission. Maybe go see it when it's free. Sure. I mean, if you really don't value your time. But you know what you should read? What's that? The review of Pet Cemetery on BiteBSU.com. Ooh. But you know what? You should also also read. What what? You should read my article, The Ending of Pet Cemetery Explained on Looper.com, because I'm a freelancer at Looper.com and I wrote that article at five in the morning. Yeah, go read it because I I've worked you know <laughs> If you've come with us this far and you're still some for some reason want more pet cemetery content, you know what? This is probably gonna be the best place to go find it. Yeah, I mean, go for it. I'd really appreciate it. But I am your host, Emily Rubin. With me today is... Jeremy Rogers. And we don't like Pet Cemetery. sorry to say. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, you can read all of our content at ByteBSU.com and TheBallStateDaily.com. Be sure to follow us on social, on our Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at ByteBSU. And keep up to date with all of our videos and articles and podcasts and all of that. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you again next week on Input 2.